What's up, everybody? I'm Mike Wilson with Any Hour Services, and we're proud to help bring you this podcast. If you ever need a resource for information about your home's electrical, plumbing, heating, or air conditioning system, you can find Any Hour Services on Facebook, YouTube, or online at anyhourservices.com. Hi, this is Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. There are many life changes that can happen after divorce that make it difficult or impossible to uphold requirements of your divorce decree. The orders issued in a divorce are based on the facts presented at that time, but the circumstances used in issuing those orders can obviously change. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. Welcome to Ideation Collective. I'm Jess Larson. Today on the show, we've got Brad Mills. It came down to a lot of hard work uh, and a lot of persistence because I wasn't necessarily the most talented uh, player. And I definitely had a lot of people telling me that it wasn't going to happen for me. Um, that was a, a tremendous motivation. Um, you know, when whenever somebody told me that it, I wasn't going to make it, it just it drove me to work harder. This is another episode of our Innovation and Leadership series where we interview rocket scientists, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. If you like what you hear, we're also going to be releasing exclusive bonus materials like PDF checklists, reports, and presentations, but only for members of the collective. If you're interested in those, as of this recording, you can still join for free on the Ideation Collective website, which is iCollective.co slash free. Again, iCollective.co slash free. Also, before getting rolling, we want to invite you to consider helping the charity our founders started called Child Rescue. We work to combat child sex trafficking in the United States and abroad. One of our foreign projects we're working on right now is helping to build an aftercare orphanage in Cusco, Peru. To learn more about that, please come to the Child Rescue section on our website, iCollective.co slash child rescue. So with that out of the way, let's get to the interview. Brad, thanks for being on the show. My pleasure, Jess. Thanks for having me. So, uh, growing up in the Great White North, like yourself, uh, most of my friends, you know, in Edmonton, back in the early days when the Oilers were winning Stanley Cups and stuff like this, pretty much all my classmates had the dream of playing in the NHL also. And uh, you're one of the ones who beat the odds and, and did make it to the NHL playing for New Jersey and then the Chicago Blackhawks. Um, can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, how you approach that and why, you know, you played for Yale and you, you did make it to the NHL and, and really what some of the things you had to do to go above and beyond to, to make it into that, that, that tier. Yeah. Um, you know, it was a sort of a lifelong thing. Uh, my parents were both born and raised in Edmonton. And so I grew up watching the Oilers and, and all the Stanley cups they were winning. And, and that was kind of my, my team as well. So I can relate absolutely. And, I knew from a very young age that I wanted to play in the NHL. My my mom actually shared uh, you know a couple journal entries and a couple school projects that I had done where I was you know essentially saying I'm going to play in the NHL and before that I'm going to play college hockey and I'd kind of built this plan from from a very early age uh, on, on how I was going to get there. And I didn't even realize this until she showed them to me, but, um, I thought it was fairly interesting how closely things actually played out to what I had written in fourth grade or whatever it was. Um, yeah, I knew, I knew that's what I wanted to do. And I thought about it a lot. Uh, a lot of my decisions revolved around, you know, getting myself closer to that goal. Um, it came down to a lot of hard work, 
uh, and a lot of persistence because I wasn't necessarily the most talented uh, player. And I definitely had a lot of people telling me that it wasn't going to happen for me. Um, <laughs> Thank you, Peter. Uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks, people. It was a uh, tremendous motivation. Um, you know, when whenever somebody told me that it, I wasn't going to make it, it just it drove me to work harder. Um, and uh, I realized pretty early on that I wasn't necessarily the most talented, not only because people were telling me that, but I could see it uh, as I competed against kids in my age group that I wasn't necessarily always the best. But um, I knew that I could outwork uh, a lot of my competition. And so that, that was kind of my, my game plan. I was going to work harder. Um, and I did for a long time, uh, actually spent one summer in New Jersey after playing three years in the minor league, uh, affiliate for the New Jersey devils, my first three years pro, um, training full time in New Jersey. And I was sleeping on an air mattress at a friend's house and, we had a ridiculous training schedule. Um, looking back, I realized that it wasn't necessarily optimal. Uh, I was actually working. <laughs> I was actually working way harder than my body was capable of recovering from. And uh, I was, it was the law of diminishing returns, as they say. Um, I ended up getting injured pretty early on in the season that year, uh, and did okay in the fitness testing. Um, but after that year, I, I kind of realized I figured out where the line was. I had to go past the line uh, to know um, where it was. But that following summer, I backed it off uh, a bit, was a little bit more strategic um, in my training regimen. Yeah. Uh, I would go really hard for three weeks, take a week off, go really hard for three weeks, take a week off and let my body recover. And I was I was seeing more and more uh, improvement uh, in my conditioning level and uh, wound up doing really exceptionally well on, on the fitness testing that training camp. Um, and it was the best shape I'd ever been in my life by actually doing less work. I was, uh, in far better shape. Um, so that was, that was one aspect. I, I started sleeping in an altitude tent as well to yeah. try and improve my, uh, my VO two max. That was an interesting uh, time. Yeah. I remember <laughs> you telling me about that and how like, well, and I think this is a, a credit to why as, you know, self-professed, not the most talented guy, you, you did make it all the way to the top there, to the NHL. Um, talk to us about how much fun it is to sleep in an altitude tent in the summer. <laughs> it's, <hot. laughs> it's like, yeah, it's like, you know, if you've ever gone camping and the sun comes up at, you know, 7.30, in the morning, it starts baking your tent and by nine, you know, it's unbearably hot in there. It was, it was similar to that experience. Um, it's contained air environment. So you're, you're basically you know, breathing your own fumes, uh, after a few hours. Um, and it gets really hot and sweaty. Um, but, uh, Sounds I felt delightful. like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it, it wasn't, uh, ideal. Let's just put it that way. I, uh, I invested in some good fans and that helped mitigate the, the discomfort, but, um, it was something I felt like I had done everything else uh, that I could do, and I was still just a little. I, I was I was just half a step away um, from maybe making that jump from uh, AAA to the NHL, and it actually improved my VO two max by thirteen percent. Uh, my endurance um, was better 
it's a it's kind of a subtle. Everybody who doesn't know what a VO two max is, what what is that measuring? Essentially, it's your body's ability to utilize oxygen. So the the whole scientific concept behind an altitude tent is that by creating a lower concentration of oxygen in the air that you're breathing while you're sleeping in the in the tent, it puts your body in a hypoxic state where it has to produce more red blood cells in order to utilize the depleted oxygen level. Um, and then when you're back in a oxygen-rich environment, you have that adaptation of, of a higher red blood cell count um, in order to utilize more of the oxygen that you're breathing in, sure. um, which improves endurance. Yeah. So you know that was uh, one of the more extreme measures that I took. Um, yeah, what what percentage of the other kids and the minors who are trying to make it to the NHL? What what percentage of them were doing that? Uh, as far as I knew, zero percent. There was one other guy, um, a friend of mine that I learned later had one, but uh, he had one that was sort of like a a single man pod. Um, mine was my entire room that I that I slept in and kind of napped in and lived in when I wasn't training or, or golfing <laughs> hard, hard life golfing. Yeah. <laughs> so hey, I walked, I carried my bag, so <laughs> I got to get some credit there. Um, so, and what, what would your work like, you know, there's a lot of us who were in a lot better shape when we were skateboarding in high school or something like that. And, uh, we think, oh man, I really got to get to the gym. What, what did your workout schedule look like back then when you're, when you're trying to make the cut? Um, once I had it dialed in, I, cause I, I kind of touched on that earlier, how I, I just was working out too hard. Um, cause when I was in New Jersey, we were doing two a days. Uh, I was, I was skating Monday to Friday and doing, uh, mountain bike sprints on a, on a steep hill on, on Saturday for conditioning. And then Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I was lifting and Tuesday and Thursday I had track sessions. So it was about, it, w- it was 11 workouts a week. Um, and those consisted, those were approximately an, an hour to an hour and 15 minutes each. So it was a, a lot of, of high intensity, uh, time in the gym. And as I kind of learned to, to dial it back a little bit, it was four lifts a week, uh, one session of yoga and four ice times a week. Um, and you you're, know, and you're those, lifting, what kind of, you know, how, how heavy were you going? What, like how many reps were you doing when you're lifting? So, it varied. So uh, one of the kind of, I guess, theories was was to try and create uh, a program that had enough variation in it that you'd never adapt fully to it. As soon as your body started to kind of feel like it had it figured out, the, the program would change. So we were doing a lot of like high volume, uh, low weight work. We were doing uh, low volume, high weight. We were, we were doing a combination of both. It, it's, I mean, I, I could sit here and, and talk for for hours on, <laughs> sure. on, you know, the get in the weeds about, about the training program. But essentially the entire, uh, idea was for the month after the season ended, it was rehabilitation and get your body back to neutral where, you know, you could start putting some, some stress on it. And then, it was a, a period of hypertrophy where you're trying to build uh, muscle mass uh, and then a strength period where you're trying to improve uh, like max force 
and then a period of power where you're trying to create explosive strength and then finishing and culminating with a power endurance uh, phase where you're trying to be able to produce large amounts of power but be able to do it repeatedly um, similar to you, the way that you would during a hockey shift. So, you know, 45 seconds to a minute and 15 seconds of high-intensity power output. Sure. You know, that was the kind of the, the transition. I know previous to this, we, we had talked and we're always asking guests like who had a big influence on them early in their career, early in life on how to treat others or who was a mentor to them. And I remember you talking to me about your, your coach at Yale. Didn't, didn't you tell me he had a really big influence on you? Yes. He, well, he kind of, he and, and the assistant coaches who made the trek out to Fort McMurray to watch me play junior hockey and, um, pluck me from obscurity <laughs> um obviously changed my life uh by giving me that opportunity um yale was a pretty amazing place uh, opened my eyes to to a world that i didn't realize even existed um and he had a he, he had a pretty simple uh, approach to the game you know he he could get pretty what's it what's his name tim taylor okay he uh he passed away a few years ago um you know, for for a couple years, I had a, put some significant time and energy into uh, trying to decide whether I was going to coach after I was playing, and, and he was a big part of that. Uh, the big appeal to me was was the opportunity to to have an impact on on the lives of of, of some young hockey players and and help them achieve their dreams the way that he helped me. Uh, yeah, like what, yeah, what's he, an example? What did that look like? What's can you can you remember some incident or some defining moment or anything that something he told you? He he really helped me get out of myself um, a lot of the times. Uh, I've had a tendency to be a pretty selfish person, still do, and you know something I, I I'm work glad you on. brought that up. I was going to bring that up, but you know. <laughs> Yeah, you said it, not me. Let's just put it that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I appreciate uh, you letting me <laughs> you know. air your sins. Yes, exactly. Good, good, the, good. Um, I, I remember after my first semester at Yale, I had taken two years off. I was playing junior hockey. I was working construction and um, had maybe cracked you know two, three books during that period. I was playing a lot of video games not having a lot of high-level intellectual conversations. So by the time I got to Yale, my study skills were pretty rusty, and uh, I'd kind of breezed through high school. My grades came back after the first semester, and uh, he wasn't very impressed. <laughs> he he came up to me, took me aside, you know, asked me how things were going. Um, he was very gentle, uh, but I remember he said, you know, Brad, you, you've got a really good opportunity here to, to get a world-class education and I, I don't want to see you squander that. And, you know, even if, even if you don't care, um, you know, if you don't pull up your grades, I'm going to have a really hard time getting anybody else from Western Canada into this school. And you're not going to be just ruining your chances of, of getting a good education, but you're going to ruin the opportunity for somebody else. And I remember thinking, you know, oh, crap. like, wow, right? Like he could have come over and, you know, reamed me out or, or cursed at me, but he was just very honest and, and 
and straightforward and and sincere and i it had a it had a very strong impact on me he he cared about his players he cared about me but he also cared about the program and and the institution um and uh you know he he wanted me to get better and he knew that that i cared about where i came from and and uh the legacy that i was going to leave there for for other western canadian hockey players so um had a big impact on me and we had this slogan on the on the locker room door as we went out for practice, and it said "Get better today." And uh, he was a believer in you know small and simple things um, making large impacts over time. So those were that that was the one of the tenets that I took away uh, from the program. And then that that conversation was probably one of the most impactful uh, conversations we had when I I realized that it's it's not all about me, and um, I need to think about other people more than I was. Sure. Um- you know, we're always talking about books on the show and people's book recommendations. And I know one of the books that that's really stood out to you is uh, Still Power. Did you read that back then or when did you read that book? I read that book uh, my first year with the Devils, actually. Mm. And, and for everybody who doesn't know what is what it's about, can you give us just a quick like what it meant to you or what you got out of it? Essentially, the idea is that our experience of life, um, you know, the way we feel about life is a product of the way we think about our life. The circumstances, kind of the the outward circumstances of, of what's going on around us, how people are treating us, you know, all that, all that external stuff is sort of neutral because you can have the same person in the same circumstance, but on two different days, depending on their mood and their perspective, can feel two completely different things. Um, about what's going on around them. And it's very easy when you're in, you know, the National Hockey League and your career is on the line every time that you step on the ice to think that things are life and death and they're just not. And if you buy into that thinking that that my life is going to be made or broken on this next shift, you're going to have a very hard time uh, just being in the moment and 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 being your most productive self uh, and pu- putting on an, an elite performance when you're, when you're stressed and you're fearful and you're worried um, about making mistakes. Uh, so it was a, it was a big, it, it was really insightful at, at a time that I really needed it. Um, reminded me that, you know, the more thinking you're doing sort of the last time you're actually spending in the moment, a lot of, a lot of your thought is either anxiety about the future or uh, remorse about the past, um, and that takes you away from the moment where, you know, elite performance is is uh, expressed in the present moment. So um, that was kind of the the general gist of it. It was written by a guy named Garrett Kramer. He's uh, out of New Jersey, um, and he's kind of been harping this this inside out message. Uh, for a few years now, and uh, you can follow him on Twitter. He's he's got a few really neat videos. He can sum it up a lot more eloquently than I have. Um, clearly, I'm not going to be a, uh, going into the field of sports psychology anytime soon. That may have sounded a little jumbled, but uh, that was a general <laughs> gist. Sure, it is interesting. As, as you were saying that, I was just thinking about how many other aspects of life long-term thinking helps out versus short short-term thinking seems right. like so many things that seem like a crisis, a little long-term thinking ends up being helpful on. Right. Yeah, there's a really interesting parable about this guy who's, you know, he's got a farm and 
the he's got one horse and the the lock breaks on the gate and the horse escapes and one of his neighbors comes by and he's like oh what bad luck and the guy says well good or bad uh, who am i to say the next day his horse comes back with five more horses and uh you know because the gates open and they come in and he closes the gate and and his neighbor comes by he's like oh you got five horses like what good luck he's like good or bad who am i to say his son is trying to break the, the wild horses, falls off and breaks his arm. And the same neighbor comes over. What bad luck? He says, <laughs> good or bad luck? Who am I to say? Next guy, the army comes by um, needing soldiers, but his son's arm's broken. The neighbor comes by. What good luck? You know, it's like whatever the circumstances of our lives, we don't really know the way it's going to play out. Um, and and our, our like you said, our short-term perspectives wants to judge a lot of things as good or bad, but... Uh, in the big picture, um, you know, it's it's always helped me to to kind of just trust that things are going to work out uh, the way they should. You know, I, I love that story. I uh, There's a version of it, a Chinese version of it at the end of the movie, Charlie Wilson's War, the Tom Hanks, Robert Seymour Hoffman movie. And, OK, uh, yeah. And, and in that one, the guy says, we'll see, you know, that's that's his version of it. And uh, you remember my partner, John, from the fund in Calgary? Right. That's what we'd started saying to each other all the time. It's like, <laughs> we, we like tried not to get so depressed about things or so excited about things. And we just kind of, our, our like code word was, we'll see, you know, like, yeah. it's just like, ah, life's probably not as great or as terrible as it seems at any given moment, you know? Right. Right. Yeah, for sure. Well, um, thinking about a couple of the, the fun things, uh, tell us about, uh, you know, that, that boyhood culmination of all these dreams when you make your first goal in the NHL. Oh, that was, uh, that was surreal. Um, yeah, I'd been called up, uh, to the devils kind of had a whirlwind first two games. And then we were in Chicago and, uh, one of the trainers for the game says, you're going to score tonight. I, I can feel it. <laughs> and I'm sitting there thinking, yeah, right. Like. I've already played two games. I've had one shot on goal. Like, I, I, I don't got, I don't have a lot of faith, but, you know, I'm going to go out and give it my best shot. Um, it was on a line change. I came on, Kovalchuk and, and Langbrenner were on the ice. It's kind of a broken play. The puck squirted Who, who out were you playing me. against? Uh, we were playing against the Blackhawks. We were in Chicago, and I was playing for the Devils at the time. And uh, Kovalchuk kind of took the puck in uh, behind the net. The, the puck squirted out in the slot anyways. It's bouncing, and I took a whack at it, and it kind of just bobbled up into the air. Um, and I kind of just stayed with it and got a second whack at it, and it miraculously found a hole behind the back of Marty Turco's knee and just squeaked in. Um, I, I, I thought I saw it go in. It went through the D-man's legs and behind the goalie's knee, and then it kind of like slid under the pad uh, in the back of the net, so I, I lost sight of it. And it was like half a moment of disbelief, and then I saw my team, my teammate, like raise his hands and start celebrating, and I realized it had gone in. And we were in Chicago, so the place just, the place just went like dead silent. Like twenty thousand people just hush falls over the crowd. My brother told me later on that he started going nuts because he had taken a red eye bus down from Toronto to watch the game, and he was going bananas in the stands and like. Everyone else was sitting on their hands, just staring at him, like, "What's wrong with this guy?" <laughs> and he was just like, "That's my brother." But yeah, it was 
it was kind of like an out of body experience. Um, <laughs> yeah, I bet your mom and dad too, uh, driving you to a million hockey practices for twenty years, <laughs> finally paid yeah, off. Huh? Yeah, yeah, they uh, they had been at the previous game in Vancouver uh, a couple nights before, um, but they weren't, uh, and they saw my first fight there, so that was at least <laughs> yeah, something to, something to watch. I think we've got both the videos, both the videos of your first. Your first goal and your first fight. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's funny. <laughs> I love being from Canada, you know, because all these, all these sports down here, like basketball and stuff. You know, there's, there's, you know, fighting's a little more frowned on. Um, yeah, tell discouraged. Us about, yeah, <laughs> slightly, slightly more discouraged than our our, our beer our beer swigging brethren back north. Um, so uh, yeah, tell us about the first fight. Uh, it was a guy I had actually played college hockey against. Um, he played at Dartmouth um, while I was at Yale. And there's kind of a, I don't know, you you go into a game on any given night, and when you're when you're a guy like me who's kind of on the cusp and you know really trying to s- literally scrap my way into the lineup, um, I had a pretty good idea who on any given team might be willing to fight me and wasn't going to kill me uh, in the process. <laughs> and uh, um, Tanner Glass was one of those guys. I was familiar with him from college. We played against each other a lot, um, and he was a similar type player. Uh, so I think it was my second shift. Uh, it was kind of all, It was kind of a blur. I don't really remember it all that clearly. Maybe that's a product of getting hit in the head a few too many times. <laughs> but uh, I just asked him for the face-off, and – he obliged me and you know we had a a good fight if if anyone who's listening wants to see with their own eyes i'll spare you the uh the pain of having me recount it in words yeah yeah we'll we'll put we'll post the video on your page on ideation collective um it's funny though because there is absolutely a different mindset right you know my my good buddy i grew up with lloyd mullen for sure the best hockey player in our little farm town you know like he was expected to fight a training camp like that's like how you prove you're on the level or whatever right yeah it's uh there's a there's a there's a number of different scenarios where you know you might get in a fight sometimes it's something happens heat of the moment you're angry you fight sometimes you know someone does something and it's a retribution thing um a lot of times at least in my experience in nhl it's a long season. You got 80 games and some nights your team can just be flat. There's not a lot of excitement. Um, even though there's a bunch of people, it, it, it gets a little bit, uh, <laughs> monotonous. monotonous. Yeah, exactly. And, and I mean, I'm sure any, anyone who's a sports fan, uh, knows, uh, can, can remember a game where their team just looked flat and it's a way to get the guys into the game. Um, you go out, you're willing to kind of lay it on the line. And I mean, anybody who's ever watched a UFC fight or a boxing match or even a, a hockey fight, if you've seen one, like it gets your heart going. You, like, <laughs> I, I can be sitting here on my couch and I see a hockey fight and my pulse starts racing. Maybe that's because uh, I'm conditioned that way, but you know, it does the same thing for your team on the bench. It gets the guys fired up and, you know, gives them an energy boost for their next uh, couple shifts and it raises the energy level of the whole team. Yeah. I'm sure my wife is listening to this thinking like, drink a Red Bull. What do you, what do you boys have to fight for? <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. Um, so, uh, listen, I, I know um, you worked hard, you paid the price, you reached that ultimate level. Um, 
but I know that you have really uh, spent some time trying to give back also and, and intentionally sought out some of those youth camps of bringing that NHL level uh, skills to, to the regular kids back working at their dream. You want to talk about um, just maybe, maybe any cool experience from going back and teaching some of the younger kids? I just feel like um, there's been no real white light miraculous experiences, but um, you know, kids are shy. I think I remember when I was a kid and I remember good players coming to skate with us and I actually, Joe Sackick's sister was my power skating coach for a little while while I lived in BC. And even just like that secondary, like one degree of separation between me and Joe Sackick, I remember being like so intent and listening to everything that she had to say. And that was a big deal. Um, it made me feel like my dream was tangible. It was real. It wasn't somebody I was watching on TV. Um, it was somebody that was on the ice with me. And it was it had a huge impact on my life um, as a young hockey player. And I've always wanted to um, give that for uh, give that to to another young player. And I don't know if I've ever done that. <laughs> uh, it's, it's it's hard to tell. Sometimes you just get kind of blank stares and confused looks. And um, but uh <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm sure anyone who's anyone who's ever been a teacher in any capacity um, can relate that. Yeah, you're not going to reach uh, every child that you work with, um, but I I do know you know I've made I've made a difference in in a couple kids' lives, and um, you know that's that's all I've ever ever wanted to do. I I continue to look for opportunities to do that. Uh, I think that'll be a, a part of kind of my my service going forward the rest of my life. Um, just I've I spent all these years getting my teeth knocked out and and, and gaining all this this hockey knowledge. So uh, better not to let it go to waste and and try and give some of it back. <laughs> That's great. Well, um, you know, in the show, we're always asking people for their different perspectives on uh, the charity we started, Child Rescue, and trying to combat child sex trafficking. And we always ask people, you know, what advice would you have for us of getting more people involved? So today's a really fun episode because it's not hypothetical. Um, you know, with your with your switch to your next career, now that the hockey days are over, um, joining uh, Salesforce.com. Do you want to talk about what, what you've been able to do and the, how the Salesforce program works and, and the new partnership with Child Rescue? Yeah, uh, sure. The, well, recently, um, you know, you've had uh, a team, I think they're down there currently, um, spending some time to gather some footage and put together some, some videos uh, to raise awareness of, of this project um, down in Peru for uh, the orphanage kind of expansion project for some of the children that uh, Child Rescue has been able to um, help help save. Uh, and I had a chance to kind of reach out to my t immediate team at work. Um, There's about 50 people uh, on the sales development team here in Toronto and kind of share a little bit about what Child Rescue does um, what this project uh, was intended to to achieve, and kind of what uh, the the vision is going forward, and had had an outpouring of support. Uh, it was kind of last minute. Um, we're just scrambling to to put together a little bit of money to help uh, um, 
help kind of finance this trip and we were able to get together 300 uh $300 American so it was a little bit more than that Canadian and uh, um the way it works at Salesforce is that they'll they'll match um I mean up to a certain amount I'm not sure what the cap is but they'll match $100,000 cap is that what it is yep wow that's that's the real deal so they'll match uh the our the employees charitable contribution so we were able to raise three hundred dollars um in one day and then uh we're able to get a three hundred dollar match from salesforce to help finance this uh this trip that you know hopefully will bear fruit uh and and help us raise some some awareness about uh all the good work child rescue is doing well obviously we're big fans of salesforce for the grant they've given us to use the software for our donor database and things like this and Anybody who's who's running a nonprofit or helps a nonprofit, if you haven't done that, you should definitely apply to Salesforce and, and get that product that they'll grant you for free. Um, that's been a big help, and uh, it was interesting. You know, we had Lindsay Knuven on; she's episode two on the show, um, and she was at Salesforce Foundation back in the early days. I mean, I know it's like 150 people now with Salesforce, as huge as it is. Um, she was like person number five or, you know, employee number six at Salesforce foundation back when it's going and just talking about how Salesforce has really been kind of one of those leaders that a lot of, especially Silicon Valley and others across corporate America have, have really like kind of been trying to chase them as far as it's not like corporate responsibility as an afterthought in the marketing budget. Like it's (laughs) these things, like, like you said, if the staff donate money that Salesforce will match it up to a hundred thousand dollars and, um, and talk about how they'll actually pay you guys to come do service on location for us, how that program works. Yeah. So I, I guess the, the, the whole program is the one, 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 um, the one, one, one model. So the company's goal is to donate 1% of product, 1% of equity and 1% of time. Uh, and so we're paid, uh, for seven work days, uh, to perform service, uh, community service or, or charitable service of some kind in, 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 the give, in, a, in a given year. So what Salesforce will do is if you are able to raise some money for a project that's near and dear to your heart, such as child rescue in my instance, um, they will match that amount that you raise, but they will also pay you for uh, a week to go down and, and actually volunteer your time to help, help the construction cost. or whatever. Right, right, exactly. And so, you know, what we've talked about is to create a trip where uh, I've had a couple of people express interest in, in coming with me already uh, to go down to Peru and to uh, volunteer at the orphanage and, you know, help with some of these aftercare programs, uh, some tutoring and, and whatever else that they're providing down there, uh, construction and, and, also spend some time in Peru and, and get a little bit. Yeah, go see of, Machu Picchu right there at Cusco. Yeah, exactly. Try and try and combine that into a, a trip. And, you know, you're not just kind of just a tourist. You're also you know, doing some good in in a place in the world that, that needs some help. Yeah, anybody listening to this that wants to get in on that, email us and, and we'll see if, uh, see if we can make it work. Come with us. Um, well, we really appreciate you guys doing that. and uh, And I think it's cool that, you know, you've got the opportunity to spread this, not just the, the Toronto office that you've got the ability to reach out to coworkers across the US and Canada, hopefully get others involved. Yeah, and I'm I'm excited to, to share the message and 
and uh, get some get a groundswell of support going and, and see what we can do. So, um, in your opinion, what what is the effect that has when it comes to attracting the millennial workers and like culture wise, just your colleagues' reaction to this program being out there? You know, I think it's it's not necessarily the the be all end all, but um, it's like once people get to Salesforce and they actually get out and, and start doing this volunteer, uh, the, participating in these volunteer programs, maybe they haven't had time recently or it's been a, it's been a little while since they've done it. They're reminded of, of how much f- fulfillment they get from it. Um, and then they realize that this company they work for actually cares and is, is trying to make a difference in the world and make the world a better place. It's not just trying to make money. Um, it's actually trying to, to impact some change and it makes you feel good. It makes you feel good about where you work. It makes you feel good about the people you work with. Um, you realize that they care. And I, I, I feel like a lot of my coworkers don't want to work somewhere where they're just punching the clock and you know, making shareholders money. They, they want to work somewhere that they feel like they're making a significant impact on the world. And, um, you know, we're, we're not martyrs by any stretch, but uh, when you can weave that in and and allow people to to step back a little bit from the day to day and give back, um, it definitely re-energizes you and refocuses you um, and inspires you to to go back to your day to day and to work harder, knowing that you're going to have the opportunity to to take some time for for yourself and for your community to to give back and and to to make a change. That's great. You know, um, I think uh, something else that would be interesting to talk about is for so many entrepreneurs or innovators, we're always, it always seems like we could do more if we could get more dollars in. So it's either more investors or more customers, right? And either one of those is a form of sales. Um, I think it'd be fun to talk about, uh, you know, what you feel like you're learning in this new, you know, this second career of yours. Um, I feel like I've been selling stuff for 20 years since I was 15 years old. Even when I was a CEO of different companies, you feel like you're still just selling something, right? Um, so when you think about like, I know, I know you're new over there, but you've been able to rise to kind of, didn't you tell me, uh, on the last reporting period, you were top two out of the 50 on your team. Yeah. Yeah. I had a, a really good month in the last period and, uh, I've, I've ramped up pretty quickly. I think a lot of that has to do with just being a little bit older and, and uh, having a little bit more life experience, um, but also being able to translate some of the some of the lessons that I learned in 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 hockey and, and trying to find a shorter route to to that success. And I started out doing the same thing with brute force and effort, and have kind of refined my process a little bit to to attack things a little more strategically and uh, yeah, intelligently. So like, like, what's an example? What's you know. What's an example of uh, being a bit more strategic in the way you're approaching things and, and why you're, you think your closing rate's going up or why it's working better? I think well, some of it has to do purely with, with product knowledge and uh, experience and being able to be a little bit more consultative in my uh, conversations with prospects. Um, I had a call today, for instance, where a guy was struggling with with lead quality, and um, and he had hired a new salesperson that was struggling mightily to close sales. And you know, I suggested to him that uh, not not just to to sell Salesforce to him, because obviously that would be a tool that would enable him to do this, but 
to to divide up the labor to have to have his salesperson that he hired not trying to to close sales but merely to sort um, the quality leads the high quality leads from the poor quality leads. In my job as an inside sales rep, I'm, my job is really to qualify leads. It's not to close business. And by doing that, he can dedicate more of his time to quality leads and you know bringing dollars in the door. Um, as opposed to having them both trying to sort and, and spending some of his time on quality leads, um, he can spend all of his time with with qualified quality leads. Uh, that was that was one instance where this was somebody that I was able to generate enough interest with to convince them to take the next phone call. Um, where a few months ago I wouldn't have been able to do that, and a lot of that was a little bit of extra preparation and then a little bit of extra knowledge on my part. Um, just well, from just from experience. Yeah, let's talk about that. You know, inbound marketing is certainly a buzzword. Um, at the consulting company I was at last, I talked them into buying your guys' product, uh, the Pardot lead nurturing drip, you know, drip marketing to go with their Salesforce database. Uh, a lot because of those videos, like the Burberry video or the Trunk Club video, seeing how they like how it legitimately <laughs> extended the reach of their team. But um, we get all these white papers and eBooks and stuff about you know this landing page or this content marketing idea to generate the lead. And then I feel like most material stops dead right there. And everybody just assumes once you've got the lead, then, it, then you're golden. Um, why don't you talk for just a second about, you know, you're sorting through and you find the lead that's higher quality, what, what you're doing these days instead of just immediately picking up the phone. Like what, what does 10 minutes of prep look like for you? So I'll, what I'll do is I'll, I'll go to their website. Um, oftentimes if it's a high quality lead, they'll have a high quality website. Um, I think a lot of people understand now that that people are pretty much taking sixty percent of their their buying journey before ever talking to a human being. So they're on the on the internet, they're searching, they're gathering information, and if your website's not set up in a way to um, nurture that interest and to bring that interest from you know the tip of the funnel further down before they engage with you, um, there's there's some shortfall there. And, you know, the, the idea is that you're empowering your customers to educate themselves, um, providing them with resources. But in exchange for that, you're asking for um, a little bit of, of give and take. So it's like, okay, well, I'm going to provide you with these resources that we have. And in return, I ask for your contact information so that we can have a conversation about it. Um, so I'll look and, and try and identify maybe where they could use some help, um, from our end. And by picking up the phone, once I have something intelligent to say and something of value to offer this person, the CEO or this vice president of sales or, or whatever it may be, who's a busy person, um, you know, my chances of having a good conversation about their business goes way up. If I, re- if I just pick up the phone and blindly call uh, a high-quality lead and, and say, hey, I noticed you were on our website. Um, do you want to buy Salesforce? You know, <laughs> that's not, that's not going to be a productive conversation. W- once in a while, they'll say, oh, yeah, actually, I'm, I'm looking to buy. Can I have this many licenses? But um, more often than not, they want a consultative experience. You know, they don't just want they don't want a tool or a solution. They they want to be educated about how that's going to move the needle for them. How is that going to improve their business and make them more money? And if you can have something intelligent to say about that prepared before picking up the phone, um, it goes a long way in building trust 
uh, with that prospect and, you know, raising the chances of, of them purchasing from you. Uh, someone I spoke to recently here, he's the head of Facebook uh, for Canada. And he just said, you know, he was he had never been in sales, and now he finds that the the further he goes along in his career, the more he realizes that all business is sales. And uh, he just said that people buy from people that they trust and people they like, full stop. And so, I think a big part of, of my approach now is trying to build trust by offering something to that prospect. You know, it makes me think. What, one of my favorite sales books. I mean, I guess not officially a sales book, but I think it is. Uh, the Trusted Advisor by Robert Meister and Robert Green, another guy. Um, and they talk about how trust in, in a trust relationship, somebody has to take a risk first. And if we're the professional, that means that, it, that gets to be us. You know, taking the time to look up their website, to see what their job title is, to actually have some focused brain power. And so you can call and say, hey, I noticed on your website, looks like you do this. Uh, I was thinking this is some way we might be able to help that. And you're you're actually showing up. It's it's the opposite of what a bunch of people in his book complain about. You know, they say, oh, these consultants show up and they want to buy me lunch, but they haven't done any work to get there. They haven't they haven't done anything. They want me to do all the work of telling them what they can do for me. And uh, like you said, you know, busy people. We most of us have more to dos than we have hours. And uh, right. doing that prep in advance and and short circuiting that. Uh, I wonder if there's anything here and getting right down to how can, how can I get closer to my goal? Uh, no wonder people want to talk about that. Right, because you need to understand somebody's business before you can advise them on it. And by understanding as much as you can before you pick up the phone in the first place. Uh, the less time you're wasting of theirs, I'm having to explain it to you um, when you could have just gone online and, and spent a few minutes in preparation. So um, that's definitely definitely helped me uh, improve the quality of some of my conversations. You know, I'm thinking about another thing. I'm, you know, the last few years we've been hanging out, um, you're not, I don't think too many people would describe you as a pushy guy. <laughs> and so I, I'm going to go out on a limb here and I'm going to guess that listening is a tool that you use pretty heavily in sales. Uh, how am I doing on that? Is that, is that something yeah. that you rely on? Yeah, I think, I think I subscribe to the, the 80, 20 rule. Um, try to listen 80% of the time and speak 20% of the time. Um, obviously I've been speaking a lot during this interview. <laughs> I guess that's the, <laughs> that's the nature of this. <laughs> it's the, the, that's the structure of, of an interview, but, uh, no, what I try to do is ask good questions um, that help me uncover, um, you know, w- what the challenges are. Uh, the better questions you ask, the, the, the better information you're going to get and, and the higher likelihood that you're going to be able to identify a problem that you can fix, um, you know, regardless of what your solution is. Uh, if you ask open-ended, intelligent questions about, about someone's business, uh, the higher the likelihood you're, you're going to uncover an opportunity. And, you know, that's, that's what I try to do. I, I try to listen actively um, and, and ask some layering questions and, and drill down um, deeper on, on certain things. It, it can be challenging sometimes when you get someone who owns their own business and they just want to talk and talk and talk. And you obviously have a li- limited amount of time. I'm trying to make, you know, 60 phone calls a day. So I can't, I can't, I don't have the luxury of talking to everybody for 45 minutes, but um, it's, it's asking the right questions and it's, it's, uh, it's being honest too, when it's not necessarily going to be a good fit. Um, you know, I'm not like, like you said, I'm not a pushy person. I'm, I'm not going to sell something or try to sell something to somebody, uh, that doesn't need it. Um, I think that's may, may pr- produce short term 
results, but I think long term that's a that's a terrible approach to take uh, in business. Sure. Well, um, any other? I mean, I feel like this has been a kind of fun conversation, jumping around a bit for different subjects. But um, any other advice you'd have for people who they're going after a dream, um, they're they're doing something that a lot of people told them can't be done, and uh, and they know they need to work hard, but there's also this idea of working hard at the right things, you know, uh, putting as much strategy, you know, think, it's like the whole book is the book is not called work hard and grow rich. It's called think and grow rich. Right. Right. Um, any advice that you give for, for people maybe building a business in an area that people say you can never do that? <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, they're wrong. Uh, so don't, don't listen to the haters. Uh, the longer the longer I live, the more I realize that people that are criticizing um, do so because they don't they don't want to be they don't want to feel inadequate because they've they're they're unwilling to try. Um, and you make you make people uncomfortable when you're willing to step out and take a risk. Um, so I mean, anyone that's anyone that's discouraging you uh, is just wasting your time. So that that's point one. Point two is that. If there's one thing I learned from overcoming a, a ton of people telling me that I, I could never play in the NHL um, and that that I was chasing, uh, you know, I was on a, a wild goose chase with, with no reward at the end. There's no such thing as failure. I think this is a Tony Robbins quote. There's no such thing as failure. There's only results. And so when it doesn't work, you just change and adapt and you try something else. It's like uh, I think anyone that's ever been successful will tell you something similar. I think it's Thomas Edison. It's like I didn't fail a thousand times. I figured out a thousand ways not to make a light bulb. And it's like you either you either win and you succeed or you learn something. So just keep working, keep trying, and keep adapting. You know, don't beat your head against the wall and do the same thing repeatedly, expecting a different result. I think Einstein said that's the definition of insanity. No, I'm throwing throwing out a lot of quotes here, but you can see this 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 pattern developing yeah. that a lot of intelligent, successful people are basically saying the same thing in different ways. And so I'll just reiterate them uh, what they've said instead of trying to come up with my own um, <laughs> eloquent quote. There's yeah. there's a there's one common theme, and that's perseverance. You know, success isn't is not a linear linear line. There's ups and downs, and if you can maintain focus on, on your end goal and, and persistently and confidently uh, progress in that direction, um, you know, you're also going to find that you'll receive some pretty miraculous help along the way. Um, so you know, be open-minded to, to changing your approach and, uh, and don't, don't give up. Can't think of a better place to end this. <laughs> All right. That's great. <laughs> I'm, glad I, I'm glad I hit a high note. <laughs> Hey, thanks for making time. Um, appreciate uh, appreciate your advice. Appreciate all that Salesforce is doing to help these kids and uh, help us help these kids. And uh, we'll have to have you back on the show maybe after the orphanage gets built or, or some update milestone along the way here on the project. Sounds good. I look forward to it. Thanks for having me, Jess. And that's the show. Thanks for listening today. Again, if you're interested in the bonus materials that we will be producing, make sure to come to our website and join the Ideation Collective while it's still free. The website, iCollective.co slash free. Again, iCollective.co slash free. And as always, if you want to learn more about getting involved in helping the team rescue kids from traffickers, please visit iCollective.co slash child rescue.
Hi, welcome to the Subway ad for $2.99 subs. How would you like it? Uh, I'll take Drill Sergeant, please. You got it. All right, now listen up. I want each and every one of you to drop and give me a six-inch meatball marinara. Cold cut combo. Veggie delight. Or black forest ham on your choice of bread with any veggies you want for just $2.99 each. Subway! Make it what you want at participating restaurants. Additional charge for extras plus applicable tax. No additional discounts or coupons may be applied.